Were the Confederates proto-Nazis? This is a really stupid argument that needs to be discussed. I'll talk about it on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. If you want a great educational website, head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll, free of charge. Get the free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And of course, if you purchase one or more classes there, you help keep this podcast free of charge. So go over and do that. McClanahanAcademy.com. It's a great educational website. If you like this podcast, you'll love McClanahan Academy. You can also support the show by rate reviewing and subscribing to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Get that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Also, comment on YouTube if you're watching it there. It's a great way to get more eyeballs and ears on the show. And always send me those show requests. Let me know what you want to hear. I do like to see that and read that. I don't always respond to your emails, but I do like to see and hear what you want to hear as well. So this is an interactive show in that way, and I do appreciate all your support. All right. Well, let's talk about this very stupid idea that somehow the Confederates were the Nazis in the 1860s, or proto-Nazis. Uh, this is just a really bad argument, but it's one that's been made by the left, the progressive left, and for, for a number of years. In fact, uh, just recently there was a piece by a University of Texas professor, Rob Jansen, that made this claim again, that somehow the Confederates were Nazis based on ideology. Now, uh, the, Clyde Wilson actually wrote a really good rebuttal to this entire argument almost a decade ago. You see, that's how long this has been circulating around, but it keeps coming up. Now, Paul Gottfried wrote a rebuttal to Jansen uh, right after he published that piece, but uh, Clyde Wilson's piece is just really good. And so I'm going to cover that today because I think anytime you hear this argument, well, the Confederates were just proto-Nazis, the Confederates were just Nazis, you should have this kind of information at hand to push back. And these arguments are really airtight. There's nothing you can say about them that would go against them. And uh, in fact, if you think about it logically, the, the real proto-fascists in America were the Lincolnians. Now, there's a reason why Adolf Hitler cites Abraham Lincoln and Mein Kampf as the man who he should emulate when it comes to federalism. I mean, Lincoln didn't like it. Hitler was a nationalist. He wanted to bulldoze any type of regional opposition to his authority. He was a centralizer, so was Abraham Lincoln. Now, it's not to say Lincoln was a fascist. He wasn't. But certainly the ideology that was there in the North, which was ideological, the Northern system was ideological in many ways, was more in line with the proto-fascist or proto-communist than communism than you would see in the South. Uh, it's just it's amazing how people miss that. Well, they do it because they don't want to think that their heroes, northern heroes in particular, who are supposed to be all the good guys, would be the bad guys long term. This is the real problem, right? So uh, I'm going to go through this piece. I think it's just really good, and, and we'll just get started with it. So the, the title of this, The War Between the States Who Are the Nazis, written by Clyde Wilson. Now, the Abbeville Institute published this in uh, June of 2017, so almost six years ago, but he wrote it before that. And um, it's, it's just a really good piece. Um, he says, Anyone who's been paying attention and has heard many times the assertion that the flag of the Southern Confederacy is equivalent to the banner of the Nazi German Reich. 
This is true. I mean, look at the t-shirts that were made, you know, the losers, 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 and of course the Nazi flag, the Confederate flag, and you know, Trump flag. All these people are Nazis. It's the most intellectually weak and stupid argument out there. But uh, the Nazis in no way relate to anything American except for perhaps the centralizers in American history, the ideologues in American history. And I'll talk about some of that as we get down in this piece. He says that this idea should gain any credit at all is a sign of how debased American public discourse has become by ignorance, deceit, and hatred. Perfect line. The fact that this argument has any currency shows how debased our public discourse has become because of ignorance, deceit, and hatred. Exactly. So he says, to make an obvious point, the Confederacy fought a defensive war against invasion. This is true. Uh, now, the, the uh, argument against this would be, well, wait a second there. Didn't the Confederates fire the first shots? Uh, they fired on Fort Sumter because they told the Lincoln administration that any type of effort to, to provision Fort Sumter would be considered to be an act of war. Uh, and to put this in perspective, do we blame, for example, uh, the uh, New Englanders in 1775 for defending themselves against an invasion at Lexington and Concord, against trying to hold on uh, to arsenals in Boston? Do we blame them for that? We don't. We think that's perfectly fine. We don't say, well, you know. Uh, these were all acts of aggression by these uh, New Englanders. And, of course, the rebuttal of that would be, well, but wait. Uh, they fired, the British fired the first shot at Lexington. And so they were just responding to this. Well, in their mind, of course, this was justified because it was their stuff, right? <laughs> these colonials were in the way when they were marching to Lexington to take the firearms that they considered to be theirs. So in this case, South Carolina considered the fort to be hers. And you had the United States sailing in to try to provision this. Now, we could get into this argument all day long, but Lincoln knew what he was doing. He said so afterwards. He said trying to provision Fort Sumter was exactly the thing that would kick this war off. So it was an act of aggression on the base, on the on the part of the Lincoln administration. There's no question about this. And he also had sent an expedition to Fort Pickens, which also broke a a, a truce in that area, too. Lincoln was told by Winfield Scott, if you do this, you're going to start a war. So knowing that, knowing that, who was making the first move of aggression? He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to provision Sumter at all. But he did. And so he started the war. Now, that's a war of invasion. He says it had no design to rule others or exploit their resources, only wished to be let alone. So the Confederacy had no design to rule others or exploit their resources, but the North did. The North did. Now, would the Confederacy have tried to acquire Western territory or South American territory? Probably. Uh, so would the United States. I mean, there's, there's, <laughs> I mean, it's not, the United States did it. Right? The United States became highly imperialistic after the war was over. So to say that, well, the South would have done this and the North wouldn't is just complete stupidity. You had Northerners who were certainly uh, some of the most aggressive imperialists out there. 
Nazi Germany was a militarist state dedicated to a boastful, bullying, brutal conquest of other peoples. Rather like the U.S. Army in 1861-1865. Exactly right. Southerners weren't trying to conquer the North. They weren't boastful about conquering anybody, but the North certainly was, and their military leaders certainly were. He says another obvious point. Nazi Germany was a regimented totalitarian state. On the other hand, a number of observers have suggested that the Southern people were too loosely governed and individualistic to accept the strong central authority that was needed to win their war against a larger aggressive state organized for conquest. In this respect, the Confederacy was the last Jeffersonian regime in America. Again, this is true. Davis complained incessantly about states' rights blocking what he wanted to do, and you had governors who were standing up to the central power in the Confederacy and not doing what the Confederacy wanted. Well, you certainly had governors that would, but you had a lot of opposition to centralized power in the South, in the Confederate States of America. You didn't have as much of that in the North. You had some. You had some in New York. You had some in Wisconsin. You certainly had people opposing the Lincoln administration. Heck, even in the uh, corrupt 1864 election, Lincoln only got 55% of the popular vote. And I say corrupt because there was tremendous voter fraud. He probably got less than that. Uh, probably may, maybe even less than 50%. Probably still would have won, but he got less than 50% of the popular vote. Of course, the electoral college is all that matters. But again, uh, you know, these people in the North generally had a much more centralized regime and centralized power. And there was people that complained about it. I mean, look, when you arrest 30,000 civilians and throw them in jail, many of them thrown in jail for simply opposing your administration, what kind of regime do you actually have? What kind of government do you actually have? James Byard pointed out early in the war that civil liberties were better respected in the South than they were in the North. And that was the case throughout the war. Uh, it doesn't mean that you didn't have a, a infringement on civil liberties in both places. You did. But the South was better on them than the North. He says the Nazi analogy rests on the idea that both the Confederacy and Germany were racist states. The term racist has become so elastic and pejorative that it is no longer used by honest writers. History and ordinary observation indicate a vast variety and gradation of the racist ideas that the various races of mankind have had about each other, many of them involving notions of significant differences in superiority and inferiority. This is true. I mean, so this term racist is actually a Marxist term. It comes right out of Karl Marx. Just by simply using that term, we capitulate to Marxist discussion of history, Marxist dialectic. And uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a poor thing to do. Um, and so what does race even mean uh, in, the, in the 19th century or the 20th century? If racist means in this connection uh, that the Confederacy generally assumed the attitude of white supremacy, it is true. I mean, no one would argue otherwise. Uh, you would be hard-pressed to find anyone in the United States who wasn't a white supremacist in the 19th century. You had a few that, would, uh, that believed in some type of racial egalitarianism, but not many. So this was generally across the United States, something the 1619 Project makes very clear, and they're actually right on that point. Uh, you had that in the United States. But he says this tells us very little. In the sense intended, the overwhelming majority of white Europeans and Americans were white supremacists from the first contacts with Africa in the 16th century until well into the 20th century. Abraham Lincoln expressed this idea several times. Many of his supporters did so frequently and firmly. Again, very true. Lincoln in 1858 said it. He didn't change. He didn't change at all. Even when he started advocating at the end of his life for limited uh, 
suffrage for soldiers who had black soldiers who had served in the Union Army. He didn't think that they were equal. He simply thought that they could vote because they earned it. But he didn't think that that limited number of people would really sway the, the politics of the United States in any direction. Now we know that Republicans did want former slaves to vote in the South. Why? Because that would win them elections. This is very clear. They would be able to swamp in two states in particular because they're the majority any type of Southern opposition, white Southern opposition to Reconstruction. This is what they wanted to do. It wasn't about uh, you know, some type of humanitarian egalitarianism. No, no. This was about power. By the time of the war between the states, the South had been a biracial society for more than two centuries of adjustment to that situation. Certainly by that time, the widespread attitude of the South toward blacks was paternalistic. It was an attitude assumed in everyday living. Unlike Yankees and Germans, Southerners did not make racist ideologies. Healthy black children proliferated in the South at a time when half of the white children of New York City died before the age of five. Now again, there's no genocide. This is the other thing. Nazis, of course, perpetrated genocide. There's no genocide in the South at all. At all. You have to make a real stretch. And so Jensen does that by saying the slave trade. Of course, the slave trade had been closed since 1808 with Southern support. With Southern support. It was blocked. There was some discussion of reopening the slave trade in the Confederate Congress when they were drafting the Confederate Constitution. It was blocked. It wasn't going to happen. The last venture, the last slave trading ventures, were all carried out with northern money. So who were the real genocidal maniacs? And we all know, of course, that Africa had a large role in the African slave trade. They were making a lot of money on it. And so northern merchants, northern ships, Northern interest was driving the slave trade all throughout its history. And as I talked about last week, who started Jim Crow? Well, legal segregation? Well, the North, right? So who had the real ideology? We know that uh, in terms of um, a racist ideology, it came right out of the North. Southerners talked about this, that it was Northerners who really created this racist, white supremacist ideology, biological uh, racism in the North came right out of the North. So, I mean, to say that this is somehow a Southern creation, again, is to ignore history. It is well to remember that until World War I, when factory labor was needed, the number of African-American people who lived outside the South was very small, and moving North was discouraged. Undoubtedly, one of the North's motives in the war between the states was to keep the black people in the South and out of the North. Exactly right. They made it clear, and you can read... Uh, the Frontier Against Slavery or North of Slavery, two very good books written in the 1960s on this very topic. Even Eric Foner's Free Soil for Labor, Free Men makes this clear. There's a lot of good literature written by leftists on this topic during the Civil Rights Movement because they wanted to show that you didn't have these, uh, these holy northerners that were doing anything great at the time. In the midst of the war, the radical Republican abolitionist governors of Massachusetts and Illinois fiercely protested the admission of a small number of free slaves into their states. Governor Andrew of Massachusetts was certain that black people would not be happy there and be better off in the South. Again, true. In fact, Connecticut, what it doesn't say here, is in 1866, after the war is over, Connecticut blocks black people from voting. Now, you can say that they could vote in Massachusetts, other New England states, but Minnesota blocked it as well. There was a concerted effort in some states to keep black people from voting and keep them out of the North. That was the whole point of the Wilmot Proviso at the time of the Mexican War. And David Wilmot of Pennsylvania, who was a Democrat, but he made it clear. 
We want these lands for free white men. We don't want any slaves or any black people in them. So who has the, who has the racial motivation? Is it the South, who was, again, as Clyde Wilson points out here, who lived in a biracial society? In fact, Republicans called the South a land of miscegenation. They pointed it back on the South. Look at all these mulattoes running around. Clearly, you like black people more than we do. So why would you call us the black Republicans? I mean, this was these were these racist terms were being thrown around all the time in the 1850s. He says, yet another bootlegged assumption in support of the Confederate racist theory is that the war was being fought to emancipate the slaves and therefore was against racism. This is obviously untrue. Emancipation, partial, became a goal as a war measure after the conflict had assumed titanic proportions and seemed to Lincoln unwinnable. A number of these scrawlers of graffiti on Confederate monuments have declared them to be offensive as symbols against racial equality. Emancipation, tainted as it was, was not driven by a desire for racial equality. In a sense, it was to support racism, indicating a lack of interest in the black people except as tools of conquest. Again, entirely true. There was no gradual emancipation program put forward. What's amazing is even in the War of 1812, you go back to that point, the Treaty of Ghent. The Treaty of Ghent required that the British return slaves that had been stolen during the war. And uh, that was never done. Uh, so what they did was pay millions of dollars to compensate these people that had lost slaves. And Lincoln actually floated a compensated emancipation program in Delaware. The largest slave owner in Delaware was a Republican who supported the war. And he told him how much it would cost. Lincoln approached people in Republican Party and they said, no way. So this is why when Alexander A. Stevens asked Lincoln what's going to happen to the slaves, he says, root hog or die. And I've talked about this on this podcast recently, but that was Lincoln's plan to root hog or die. Emerson said they should go the way of the dodo bird. Who was really pursuing extermination? Lincoln was in favor of expatriation and throughout the entire war. Southerners were shocked. Stevens was shocked by this. Wait a second. These are people. You're going to tell them that they're going to root hog or die. They're going to essentially be exterminated. And you look at the the uh, concentration camps that the North set up for former slaves where people were essentially exterminated. It's not something Clyde brings up in this, but they were. They were exterminated uh, because of sickness. This is the Downs book, Sick from Freedom. you got to read it. I mean, this you see the willful mistreatment of former slaves by the North. It's awful. Who really was the Nazi regime in this case? Or at least you want to say, who was the proto-Nazi? Because nobody, again, was a Nazi here. But who are the proto-Nazis in some ways? He says, emancipation of millions presented a tremendous problem for American society, and particularly for African Americans, who faced a daunting change of conditions and a catastrophic decline of everyday living standards that had compared favorably to those of Northern and European workers. Again, this is true. You, uh, a lot of these slaves would stay on the plantation, even when the Union Army came through, because they actually had supplies there. When they left the plantation, they had no food, no clothing, no medical supplies, and they were forced in these concentration camps, and they died. The, the healthiest among them were pulled out and sent to work camps to go build fortifications and ditches and trenches and all kinds of things. This is what they had to do. Right? So who is, who is the real abusive party here? And you found, I mean, again, historians have pointed this out, you found that slaves resisted northern efforts, you know, at wage work and other things. They resisted it. They didn't want to leave. They didn't, they didn't like 
the idea of leaving the plantation and uh, not being taken care of the way, that they, the way that they were before. It was a certain type of labor arrangement that they wouldn't have under a wage system. Of course, you had some slaves that would. I mean, but once they figured out they were just being used as pawns, they would go back to the plantations. It's interesting how all this works out. He says, it is evident that the emancipationists had little interest in racial equality until after the war when they discovered the usefulness of Republican voting black men in the South. When asked what was to become of the emancipated people, saintly Lincoln replied, root hog or die, something I said. The abolitionist foremost guru, Ralph Waldo Emerson, said that black people were unfit for modern civilization and would become extinct again. And so it's important to note that. Preserving slave property with, and white supremacy was not a primary incentive for those who fought under the Confederate banner, whether they were slaveholders or not. The incentive was repelling invasion. They did, so, they did not so much defend slavery as resent interference in their society by an outside force that preached hatred against them and never had any constructive solutions for a difficult situation. Those the Confederates fought against were quite as racist as themselves. Although they lost, they put up a spectacular fight, which has been long admired around the world. Confederate monuments, often erected by the financial sacrifices of ordinary people, are memorials of that fight and what it cost in blood. Again, very true. Built with pennies, I mean literal pennies, from people sending this money. Even some of the implements of war during the war were built with pennies. The CSS Jackson in Columbus, Georgia, was financed in part by a drive and school children to send pennies to go help this, to build this ship, pennies. Now, that's a, that's a wonderful statement of commitment and sacrifice. And you look at the early monuments in particular, these were about sacrifice, people sacrificing everything they had for what they said was a cause of independence. And a lot of these monuments were originally erected in cemeteries, and then they moved outside of that, not because of any kind of political motivation, but because you had public areas and generally that was a courthouse. That was it. That was your public square. So you wanted it in a place that people would see it to remember these people um, for years after that. I mean, you had World War I memorials put up in public squares, courthouse squares. Why? Because that was the public place. There was no other public place. You might have had a thoroughfare. They might have stuck a monument there, but it was try to, try to be in the most public place possible so people could remember that, not for any kind of political motivation. It's ridiculous to think that, and there's no evidence for it. They cherry-pick quotations out of speeches that say, well, these people were racist. Okay, so was anybody in the North not? Um, but that wasn't the motivation for putting up the monument. He says, were the evils of Nazi Germany perpetrated in the name of whites, the white supremacy that governed America beliefs for so long? I don't think so. He said, while the Nazis had a policy about Aryan supremacy, they in fact made wars of conquest entirely against other white people in countries and in alliance with Japanese and Muslims and were defeated by other white people, many or most of whom were white supremacists. He says, I once saw a documentary that survivors, about survivors of the Great Battle of Stalingrad. The Russians were tall and fair Aryans and the German soldiers were mostly short and Slavic looking. Nazism was not driven by white supremacy, but by German nationalism, a particularly grandiose and vicious sort. It caused the deaths of more white people than anything else in history. This is something that actually Charles Lindbergh pointed out. The war is going to destroy Western civilization. And it's, I mean, it, it started in World War I. But of course, all these people that even nowadays run around, neo-Nazis running around with Confederate flags, it's just stupid. People that have decided that, you know, Nazism is the path forward is just ridiculously stupid. It's stupid. The real path forward is you know, Jeffersonianism. 
Uh, the American conservative tradition is built on this decentralizationist position, which is Jeffersonian in nature. It's not Nazism. This is just stupidity by people that say this stuff and people that actually go out and LARP around with it. And that's the problem. You have a lot of those dopes too. So that somehow think that, uh, you know, the Confederacy was, was proto-Nazi. It's just ridiculously stupid. And anyone that does that is stupid. It's worth mentioning in this connection that the, in the period before World War II, there were strong manifestations of isolationism and pro-German sentiment in the North. A large pro-Nazi rally was held at Madison Square Garden. Such stuff hardly existed in the South. Public opinion surveys showed overwhelming pro-Ally sentiment among Southerners. And of course, you look at the number of Southerners who fought in that war, people that loved their Confederate heritage. I mean, Patton is foremost among them, but Nathan Bedford Forrest's uh, uh, grandson was blown up over Europe. I mean, uh, there are I mean, all across the line. You know, we know we've done this before. I've, I've talked about this before. The Abbeville Institute has definitely done it before. Uh, the amount of times the Confederate flag was flown in World War II and people rallied around that. And uh, this was a sign of anti-Nazism, <laughs> if anything else. It was flown uh, when the Berlin Wall came down in Berlin as a symbol of anti-totalitarianism, anti-communism. Uh, the people in China who oppose um, the uh, the totalitarian regime there often uh, will um, admire you know Robert E. Lee because they see it as this this opposition to totalitarianism. And it's, it was it's exactly what it was. But and and look, the North knows it. They've known it for years. They've known that any type of this stuff is dissidence, and they don't like that, so they want to get rid of it. He says it's also it's also worth pointing out pointing to the strong connections that German status had with the Lincoln and the Northern War of Conquest. Lincoln administration, the Northern War of Conquest. Early German settlers in what became the U.S. were mostly peaceful farmers. After the failed European revolutions of 1848, many militant, aggressive Germans immigrated to the U.S., especially the Midwest. These were revolutionaries experienced in conflict, dedicated to social revolution by violence, and ignorant or contemptuous of American constitutionalism. Lincoln courted these people assiduously. It has been shown that Lincoln's election as president was a product of the influx of Germans into the Midwest, outvoting the traditionalist Democratic majority there. Some of the Germans were also ignorant peasants who could be made into believing the cynical Republican lie that Southerners intended to enslave them. Again, all true. Uh, the, uh, there's a very famous episode um, where uh, the son of... President Zachary Taylor, Richard Taylor, is having a conversation with a German after the war, and the German instructs him, telling him how he can be a better American. And, of course, Taylor responds, he's ignorant of this because his family's only been here at that point for 200 years and uh, been part of every major event in American history, but he doesn't know anything about being an American. And I mean, it shows you the, the hubris of these people and the stupidity of it all. These immigrant union, union enthusiasts were proto-fascists and proto-communists. It amounts to the same thing. A number of Germans were generals in the Northern Army, which had also had several entire divisions composed of German immigrants. European communists boasted that these people had played a big role in the federal government's winning of the war. This is not true. Their battle record was quite poor. But it was certainly known that these German immigrants were the most brutal of Union troops in their treatment of American civilians in the South. Ambrose Bierce, who uh, wrote several stories about the war, one in which he was a prisoner, talks about no one, st no one spoke English in his prisoner of war camp. All the Union soldiers didn't speak English. 
So that's also a thing. The Christian philosopher Gerhard Niemeyer recorded an experience when he was studying in Spain just before World War II. At the table were two Germans discussing what a fine country Spain was and what a valuable conquest it would make for the Reich. Here's a Massachusetts colonel from, of the Union Army writing to his sympathetic governor in the midst of the war. A comparison here. Quote, The thing we seek is permanent dominion. What instance is there of permanent dominion without changing, revolutionizing, and absorbing the institutions, life, and manners of the conquered peoples? They think we mean to take their slaves. Bah! We must take their ports, their mines, their water power, the very soil they plow. This is a far more typical expression of what the Confederate soldier was against than pleas for racial equality. Who are the best candidates for the Nazi label in the war between the states? And that's what he ends with, and I think the evidence is clear. But these arguments are made all the time. So when you read these pieces, and again, Paul Gottfried had a good piece too, and he talks about the influence of Jewish peoples in the South and how uh, Jewish people were more welcomed in the South than they were in the North. And I mean, you can't find any evidence of Nazism in the Confederate cause. That flag should never be associated with Nazism. These monuments should never be attached to Nazism. It's all just ridiculously stupid. The people that make these arguments are also intellectually dishonest and stupid. And when you have these kind of pieces before you, it helps you push back against this nonsense. But regardless, uh, this is, the, this is the, uh, the problem with modern American society. As Clyde pointed out at the beginning, we don't really have intellectual discourse anymore. We have pejoratives and slogans and chants, and that's all we get. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.